It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all, the, with, all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and, be, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love isn't something that we only speak about. It's something that's demonstrated. And that's what Paul is doing in our passage this morning in Acts chapter 20, 1 through 16. Go ahead and turn to Acts 20, 1 through 16. It's not what Paul says in these verses, this story narrative. It's more about what he demonstrates. We are coming to the close of his third missionary journey. And it's very clear that in the first half of this chapter, chapter 20, we see the great love that Paul had for the church. But then in the second half of this chapter, which we will not cover today, but in the second half, we see the church loving him back. This is actually one of the great love chapters in the entire Bible. He's on his third missionary journey, as I said. It's his final little tour around the eastern Mediterranean. He has stopped at every place where he had effective ministry, meeting with the saints, saying his goodbyes, knowing in his heart that this is probably the last time he will see them all. So his love is very demonstrative. It'd be like you leaving a friend or a family member towards the end of your life, knowing you probably won't make it back to see them ever again. All of a sudden, the love that you feel for them becomes extremely demonstrative. You hug them a little tighter. You hold on a little longer. You look them in the face. You get a good measure of who they are because you're overwhelmed by the love you have for them. This is the Apostle Paul. He is allowing his heart to show the love that he has for these people. Last week we covered three ways in the early, very early verses here, in verses 1 and 2 really, we covered three ways that, that Paul showed his great love for the church. We said last week that first he demonstrated his love for the church in his affection. If you look at verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after the word in the ESV is encouraging them, but in the New King James and in the King James Version, it is after embracing them. He said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Paul never saw himself as a super apostle. Paul never brought attention to himself. He saw himself as just one of the brethren. I'm one of, 
I'm a teacher of the truth found in the gospel. He was always, when he was with the crowd, he was present in the crowd. He was there. He, wasn't, he didn't have head and butt disease. You know what head and butt disease is? Mike, you, you know what it is. It's where your butt's in the chair, but your head's somewhere else. That wasn't the Apostle Paul. He was there. He was affectionate. He was available. How do the people feel about this man of God who saw himself as just one of them? You only have to look down a few verses in the same chapter. Go down to verse 37. Look what it says. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. In the King James it says they laid their heads to his neck and kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he spoke to them that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. We will break down that wonderful passage in an upcoming message. But today we're just making the point that we made last week that Paul had an affection for the church. It was a demonstration of his love. Secondly, Paul's love is demonstrated in his giving. I'm talking about his sacrifice of time and of energy and of gifts. He gave his whole life to the church. Verse 1 at the end says, He went to Macedonia and went all through it. Verse 2. And you remember why. Why did he go to Macedonia? Because he was collecting money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. That is his ultimate uh, destination. The end of his third journey, missionary journey, is to arrive back in Jerusalem. Go back to Syria and come south to Jerusalem to, to distribute the funds that all the Gentile churches gave for the Jews in Jerusalem. What a demonstration of the church loving one another. Gentiles and Jews didn't get along. But when Gentiles and Jews come to Jesus, all the barriers, all the walls fall. This was Paul's journey. This is what he was doing. We see here a man who was absolutely selfless. He's totally preoccupied as a minister helping to meet the needs of those who had great need in Jerusalem. So he's collecting money. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, just write it down. 1 John 3, 18, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Do it in demonstration. Do it in truth. Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. God demonstrated through the cross his great love for us. And then, interestingly, John follows up in 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. God demonstrated his love for us when Christ went to the cross. And then he said, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The true church of Jesus Christ in the purity of what God created is a church of people who truly love in demonstration 
they love one another. Thirdly, we see Paul's demonstration of love for the church by how he taught the church. If you look at verse 2 in our text in chapter 20, when he had gone through those regions and had given them, here it says, much encouragement, he came to Greece. One of the main marks of a loving ministry is selfless, tirelessly teaching, feeding the flock of God. The good shepherd cares for the sheep, and you care for the sheep by two ways, feeding the sheep and protecting the sheep. Feeding and protecting. And the best way to protect the sheep is to feed them, to prepare them for false prophets. Let them know what truth is so they can discern between what is true and what is false. And Paul was so faithful as a shepherd on these journeys to give much teaching, much encouragement, much admonishment, much rebuke, much reproof, much correction, much comfort. That's what he did. 1 Peter 5, write it down if you would please, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. See, an elder is nothing more than someone who also partakes in the grace of Christ. Elders are not above the people. They need the same grace, they need the same forgiveness as people. There, there's no difference there. However, they are given a role to shepherd the flock of God. And he says in verse 2, 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. In the King James, it literally says, feed the flock of God which is among you. Feed them. How do you shepherd? First and foremost, you feed. You teach. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Being an elder is not about you. It's not about you, the shepherd. It's about the sheep. The shepherd, Jesus said, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ said, that a good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. A good shepherd never makes it about him. It is not for personal gain. He is to be poured out like a drink offering that the sheep might be well fed and protected in this world. He goes on in verse 3, he says, Don't be domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. They're no different than you. You live it. Don't just get up and teach them to live it. You live it. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, feeding and protecting the way of a good shepherd. Now we come to the fourth way that we see Paul demonstrating his love for the church. It's in his persistence. If you pick up with me at verse 3, there he spent three months. Three months. Verse 3 tells us that he spent three year, or three months in Greece. By the way, this is where he wrote the book of Romans. Romans is one of the greatest theological works in the entire Bible. Incredible work of God. Verse 3, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he was about ready to leave 
the eastern Mediterranean and travel all the way back to Syria, which is north of Samaria and Judea, Jerusalem. So his way home was to travel by boat back to Syria and then by, by road travel down to Jerusalem. He's going home. He's finishing his task, the third missionary journey, which was to collect the, uh, the resources for the saints in Jerusalem, which was to share the gospel out on the road. And he's done that faithfully. And it says, so he set sail. He decided, to, but then it says, and when a plot was made against him, verse 3, latter part of the verse, a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. So get the picture. Rather than leave Greece and go back over by boat, go down and over to Syria and down to Jerusalem, instead now he's going a long route. He's going to leave Greece and follow along the Med down this way. It's going to take him a lot longer to get back to Jerusalem. But he's doing it because God gave him fair warning that trouble was lying ahead. Probably on the, on the boat ride from Greece over to Syria, they were planning to throw him overboard. They were going to kill him somehow. He wasn't going to make it back to Syria. So he took the different route. But Paul didn't say when he was in Greece and found out they were going to kill him, oh man, what am I going to do now? I guess I'm stuck in Greece. I'll just stay here longer. No, no, no. Paul is persistent. I'm on a mission for God. So if God is closing that door, God has another door. The last thing God wants me to do is just sit here. I am persistent to get the gospel of Christ out and to love the church that God has raised up all the way to now Rome. Amazing. This is a persistent man. Look at verse 18. Let me just, let's just, we're, we're moving ahead because we're going to, we'll be in this next, uh, next Sunday. But let me just give you a little feedback here with this. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Okay, so what's happening? Paul has now left and he's by ship, he's pulling up to a port that is very, in Miletus, very close to Ephesus, where earlier he spent three years, talk about persistence, stayed in Ephesus, fought against the persecution, just so he might teach the church and raise up elders. And his greatest work in Ephesus was his example. And that's what he's doing. He's actually stopping on his way further south. He's stopping at a port just off the coast, about 20 miles inward is Ephesus. He had the elders of Ephesus that he spent three years with come down to the port to greet him because he'll never see them again. And he wanted one last time to pour into them and love them. And so this is what he says to them at the port. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Do you see persistence here? Why is he persistent? Because he loves them. God had put a deep love. You know what it's like when you meet a girl, guys, you meet that girl, and man, she is different. 
And over the next few weeks and months, a love begins to grow. And now there's this deep love, and you can't wait to spend time with her. Okay? Now, let me put this in perspective. Paul's love for the church is nothing like that. It is way deeper than a person can have for another person in a marriage relationship. This is Paul, the apostle, loving the whole church, not just one person. For, for, for you know, not selfish, but for personal reasons you love them. Because you have plans, you want to spend your life with them. That's not a bad thing. Paul didn't spend his life for one person. He spent his life for the church. Are you getting the picture here? So he's meeting with these elders, and he says in verse 20, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. What's he talking about? The word of God. I gave you all the word of God and teaching you in public and from house to house. It didn't matter where we, where we were at. We t I taught you. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He shared the gospel. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. <laughs> but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. If only I can do what God's called me to do and to be with you and teach you and grow you in the whole counsel of God that you might be strong and able to recognize false teachers when they approach. And some will come from outside. And Paul went on to say, and some will come from within, from within the church, false teachers. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter? 1 Corinthians 13, let me remind you, in verse 7 he said, Love bears all things. Talk about Paul now being persistent. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. This is the picture of what it looks like to love the church. This is what Paul lived. This was his life being poured out for the sake of the church. He didn't think he was better than any member of God's family. He would stop at the drop of a hat if any member of the family, you know, there's members of the family of God that you find easy to get along with because why? They're like you. And then there's other members of the family of God that, man, you're like, oh, he's coming my way. You have nothing in common except Christ. And you'd rather not spend time. That person could walk up to Paul and Paul would say, hey, take a chair, let's sit down, let's talk, let me hear what you're saying. Why did he do that? Because he loved the church so much. It was a true love. Deeper than the love that a man can have for a woman. 
verse 4 and 5 tell us in our text that some fellow partakers in the ministry accompanied Paul. They met him there in Troas of all places. These were representatives of the churches that had taken the offerings that Paul came and asked for. And so that when he came to Jerusalem, they were going to help him distribute the funds. They each came with the offerings of the people of their church from their region. And they all traveled with Paul. And so they're, they're, they're bringing these Gentile gifts to Jewish believers in Jerusalem. What a beautiful picture of unity that would be for the Jewish Christians to see just how much the Gentiles love them. You do understand that those Jewish believers used to be in the Judaism and they were taught, you despise. Gentiles are dogs. You don't even want to walk in the dust of a Gentile. They're filthy. They eat unclean things. And yet the greatest picture of love was that of a Gentile who crawled into a ditch to save the life of a Jew when he was overtaken by thieves. And here the Gentiles are coming with a love gift for the Jews. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the Jews to receive that in Jerusalem? We're talking Jerusalem. We're talking Jewish city. And yet Gentiles show up with money for your need. Well, let's move on. Fifthly, we see Paul's love for the church demonstrated in his availability. Availability. It's a simple truth. When you love something deeply, you make yourself available to it. Look at verse 5. Then these went on ahead and were wait, uh, waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed from, uh, away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So they stayed in Troas for seven days. But why? Because he was awaiting his ship to take him back to Jerusalem. Look at verse 7. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. I'm glad I'm not the only one that puts people to sleep. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. This is a wonderful story. You'll see why I say wonderful. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so departed, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That is really a loaded uh, phrase, a little, they're not a little, they're greatly comforted. Why? Because when somebody dies, uh, the people would go into a lament. They would begin to, they even had, they would hire professional lamenters who would come and then would just wail, oh, out loud, just wailing over the death of the person. And when Paul raised this young man, probably in his teens, back to life, they were 
greatly comforted by this. This is one of the first accounts, this passage, 7 through 12, of a Christian meeting, and probably is the first. And there are several things we learn from this meeting. First, we learn when they gathered. Then we learn where they gathered. And we learn why they gathered. Let me run through those quickly. When did they come together? He said on the first day of the week. First day of the week is not Saturday and it's not Monday. It is Sunday. What is Sunday? It is the Lord's Day. They met in smaller groups every day. They didn't just meet on the Lord's Day. The Bible says in Acts 2.42 and through 47 that they met in homes daily. So it's not like they're only meeting on Sunday like churches in North America. They met throughout the week. But then everybody, because if you're in a smaller group in a home or you're meeting with a group over here at the grocery store or over here, but then on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, we all come together and we meet and we have our time. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. When did it become the Lord's day? For the church, it became the Lord's day when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. He was raised on the Lord's day. That is the day of resurrection. Amen. You are sitting here this morning on the day of resurrection. And for some of you, God's trying to resurrect you right now physically from sleep. You are tired, you're weary, and God's saying, no, this is the Lord's day. Wake up. Wake up, church, and smell the coffee. Amen. Amen. Actually, wake up and sell the coffin. There you go. In Hebrews 10, 24, look what it says. We had it read for us this morning. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When it says the day, it's speaking of the return of Christ. That means you ought to come together with the believers of your local fellowship and not forsake it. Don't ever forsake it. Notice that the church was not meeting on the Sabbath. Why? Because Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. You hear people talk about going to church on the Sabbath. This is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath was yesterday, and the Sabbath is a dead issue. When Christ came back from the grave on Sunday, he had extended the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment. He is the ongoing fulfillment of the law and the prophets. No longer are we bound by Old Testament law that you would have to gather on the Sabbath and just have Sabbath, just have rest. Now the Lord's Day is a special day for us as believers. Well, why did the early church gather? Well, first let's look at where did the early church come together. Verse 8 tells us there were many lamps in the, there it is, upper room where we were gathered. The church met everywhere. That's really what he's saying. Whatever room they could find. He had never been to Troas before. He's finding people meeting believers in Troas that he never knew. Some of them aren't even believers yet. They just have heard about this guy, so they show up. And in showing up, they're just kind of wanting to find out who is this guy, what, what, what's so special about him? What, what message is this he's, he's preaching? I've never heard that message. And he starts sometime way before midnight, 
probably started about 8, 7, 8 o'clock at night. He's already preached three hours. And finally, a young kid in the window, because of all the oil lamps late at night, you have to have light, and the oil's coming off, and the heat, the warmth, and all of a sudden, this kid, whoa, and he goes out and out the window. Okay? But they met in the upper room. They met wherever. Early in the life of the church, they met at the temple. And then the Jews ran them off from the temple. And then they met at synagogues in different cities. They would have synagogues. If you had 10 Jewish men, you could have a synagogue. And they would meet there. And people would come to Christ at the synagogue, as Paul would teach. He's not going to interrupt what they were teaching. But understand this. At a synagogue, a rabbi of that synagogue, if he recognized another rabbi, he would always extend the opportunity for the rabbi to speak. And Paul being, had studied under the greatest rabbi of his day, Gamaliel, they would recognize Paul and they would let him speak. And Paul would point the Old Testament scripture to Jesus. That's what it's about. People would get saved, Jews would get hot and heavy, get sideways, and then Paul would start meeting down by the river, right, in Philippi, but also meeting in upper rooms, meeting in homes. Some homes were bigger, and so they could put a larger assembly together. But then somehow on the Lord's Day, everybody that was saved in that city would come together. Isn't that beautiful? So they met everywhere. Why did the early church gather? Verse 7, on the first day of the week when we gathered together to, to break bread, Paul talked with them. In the phraseology there, if you break it down in the Greek, it's to preach, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul would preach until midnight. But the preaching in this setting is also has a correlation to teaching. So there were probably questions that Paul allowed to be asked, and he would have dialogue with people. This is an ongoing thing from probably 8 or 9 o'clock at night all the way to midnight. Amazing. The meal, and so what did they do on the early church? First thing they did, they broke bread. They broke bread together. Now, what does that make you think of immediately? What comes to mind? Communion, the Lord's Supper, right? not true. That's part of it. That was not the whole picture. In the early church, they did not gather just to have the Lord's Supper. They gathered, this is a beautiful thing, they would gather together for a love feast. That's what they called it, a love feast. You say, man, is that, is that kind of, is that right to have a love feast? That doesn't, it doesn't sound too Christian. No, it is very Christian, believe me. The love feast was a potluck meal. The church would gather and people would bring their stuff together. And those who had food would bring their food. And those who didn't have food, the poor would come. And the people with food would share with the people who didn't have any food. And they'd have a potluck. Another picture of oneness and love in the church. After the potluck, they would then remember the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and his burial and resurrection. We've missed it, church. We've made communion to a degree, 
It's very easy for us, I should say, because communion can be very meaningful. And certainly it's not because Ray and other elders have not presented it to us in a beautiful way scripturally. But we could easily make communion a routine. Ray even mentioned it this morning. It becomes a ritual. You say, well, where did that ever get started? That we would, you know, come together and then we'd walk forward and we'd go to these little silver trays and pull out a cup and a piece of bread and go back and have a seat. Where'd that start? I'll tell you where it started. You're not going to like it. It started with the Catholic Church. Around the third century, the, the Catholics got involved. Uh, that's when it started up. And they took it and made it into this formal ritualistic experience. In the early church, for the first century and a half, you came together for a potluck, fellowship, sharing. And then after the sharing, after the love fest, after the caring for one another, now let's remember why we meet and we love each other. And they would simply take communion. It was not always led by a pastor or an apostle. The Bible does not say that only a pastor or an apostle can serve communion. Did you know that you could take communion every week as often as the, you're gathered with believers and you want to just share and love one another, you know, and maybe have a meal together, and then at the end just pull some bread out, pull out some juice, and together as believers experience the Lord's Supper together, remembering Christ. That's what it started out as. We're the ones that have relegated it to the tables and the trays. Nothing wrong with that. You can still have a very meaningful remembrance of Christ. Amen? So I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying there ought to be more than just that. Because in the early church, there was more. You, the point we're making today is just in the same way that Paul loved the church, we ought to be loving one another getting involved in each other's lives. Extend yourself beyond just seeing people at church on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. Go ahead and talk to someone. Get to know them. Ask how they're doing. Pray with them. Maybe you feel led to start meeting together one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe you feel like, I'd like to have several people just come into my home once a month where we have a love feast. Everybody brings food. What a beautiful thing. Amen? But I want you to notice what, Paul, what, uh, what Ray read for us out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 earlier. This is very concerning. I want you to see this. He said, when you come together, this is verse 20, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. See, he's talking about the love feast. That's what you start with. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. But here was the problem. They were bringing a potluck, and then you bring your food, and then you sit in the corner and eat your food. Somebody else sits over here and eats their food. Somebody else over here eating their food. And those who didn't have food didn't get fed. They had to wait for the Lord's Supper. And that was putting the wrong purpose on the Lord's Supper. Paul is getting on them about this. He says, for each in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. It isn't his supper, for in eating, everyone takes before the others their own supper. Can you imagine going to a potluck and everybody going off on their own and you being left with nothing? 
We try to do potlucks here at Bureau Bible Fellowship. We do them on special occasions. We have a Christmas dinner, and man, what a spread, and everybody brings food. Could you imagine if everybody put their name on their little bowl that they brought and said, only for the Smith family? What would that make certain people who came maybe and don't have much, what would it make them feel? This was the problem. So he goes on. Look at verse 21. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. The one guy brought his own wine. He's not sharing with anybody. He's drinking all of it himself, and he's getting drunk. And yet somebody else couldn't bring anything, and they go hungry. In other words, the people who come and have nothing get nothing, and the people who come and have a lot, they overindulge. He says in verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. If you're going to have a potluck, a, fee, a love feast, you come with the whole intention of making more, than, more food than you could, your family could eat. Why? Because you want others to enjoy it. Amen? And let me tell you, we've got some great cooks in our church. I have never left one of our Christmas dinners and went, man, I'm just so hungry. It was terrible. Now, there was the first one we did. There were so many people, and we didn't realize. And then we had the Teen Challenge boys come. Them boys eat three and four meagles, <laughs> each one. And so those of us who went through the line last, I was not one of them, but there are those of you, and you're like, where's the food? But it wasn't because people were taking their own food and going to a corner to eat. It was because... We needed more food. <laughs> and so the next year, okay, we skipped. Then this last year, oh my goodness, what a feast we had. We had more than enough food. It was a love feast. Don't despise. Listen, don't despise the unity of God's church. It is a beautiful commonness that we share as Christians, brothers and sisters. But communion didn't start that way. It didn't start with this. It started with people who just gathered together out of love, compelled by the Spirit to love each other and have a meal together. So beautiful. I've, I've met in some of your homes where you've prepared food. And what a joy to be in your home and to sit with you and fellowship and listen and hear your story. And eat food, break bread together. What a beautiful thing that is. But they also came together not just for the food. They came together for good preaching. Verse 7, Paul talked with them, intending to, to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. If the apostle Paul can go long, so can I. <laughs> Amen. He preached till midnight. And this became the priority when they met together. They would have preaching and teaching. They also had dialogue, questions and answers, that kind of stuff. It wasn't just all preaching. And the word preaching here is not, the word, is not meaning preach the gospel. It's preaching uh, the truth of God's word. So it's more than just the gospel. It is the gospel, but it's more than just the gospel. Okay. It has to do with dialogue here. And that was a priority, okay? Uh, remember what the apostles said in Acts chapter 6, verse 4? They said, we will give ourselves continually to the prayer and ministry of the Word of God. We must preach the Word. 
and we must pray. That's what an elder does, okay? In verse 7, it says, and the word multiplied and the church multiplied. When the word is taught, people want to hear the truth, and people will come, and people will be saved. Amen, when the gospel goes forth. So Paul said to young Timothy, until I get there, Timothy, you give yourself to the reading of the text, and you give yourself to teaching the, the text. That's why he came together. They, they came together for the teaching of the Word of God. So now think about this. Paul's got a long journey ahead, okay? And he has stayed up all night. And by the way, when that boy fell, he went down three stories. Believe me, he didn't just lose his life. He had broken bones. No doubt this kid had issues, okay, falling three floors out. If he fell out, who knows? He might have landed on his head. He might have landed on his back. We don't know, but he's dead, Paul goes down and lays over the boy, and he said, he's, he's alive. God raised this kid. He didn't just raise him with life, giving him breath in his lungs. He healed the boy. You say, why would God do that? Because Paul's in a new place. These people don't know Paul from Adam. And they now see this God work through Paul in such a unique way. Now their ears perk up. Listen what it said. They went back upstairs... And stayed until morning. Now that's a long church service. That's like nine, ten hours. How many of you are excited about that? Amen. Let's go. <laughs> Next Sunday, let's start at 7 a.m. We'll finish sometimes around 4. Amen. We're going to have church next week. Okay. <laughs> Verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Essos intending to take Paul aboard there, for, he, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came, we came uh, the following day opposite Chios. And the next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. He set out to be in Jerusalem on the day of Passover. And now he's waiting. Now he's got to go to Pentecost in Jerusalem because he's been delayed. Okay? Now what's interesting here, each of these little towns are about 30 minutes away from each other. So what's the point? Well, the point's pretty clear. Paul, lastly, is giving us a demonstration of a visible concern. He's stopping in little towns that he's never been to, taking time to preach. Every day they would travel from like 8 a.m. until about 6 p.m., and then they would stop because the winds were during the day. At night, the sea would be calmer, so they didn't travel at night. So he would go from one city to the next, spend the night, teach, and then get on the ship and take off for the next little town. A visible concern for people coming to Christ and for believers who lived in these regions. I love that about Paul. Each one of those cities is about 30 miles. Can you imagine how tiring that would be to preach every single day? Some of you, if you ever had to preach a one sermon, 
on a Sunday. Because basically what you're doing is you're turning in a term paper. That's really what it, the amount of study that it takes. For every minute that you preach, you are spending between 40 minutes to an hour. That's what it equals. It takes a tremendous amount of time. A pastor who is diligent in his study of the Word of God will spend anywhere from 30 to 35 hours a week in preparation. But then to preach every day or every other day, could you imagine how taxing that would be? But Paul is visibly concerned for these brothers and sisters, pouring into them, loving the church. So he stops in Miletus, and he's got a few days before the boat takes off. And so what does he do in those few days? Does he rest? No, he does not. He calls for the elders of Ephesus, and he pours into them, and we're going to study what he said next week. Do you, do you know what happened as he poured into the elders? One of the most beautiful scenes that you can find in the life of Paul happens. Because when those elders got there at the docks, Paul only had a short time to talk with them. But when they arrived, Paul was blown away because of his heart to love them for three years and pour into them and, and just give himself for them. Now they meet at the docks and they pour into him. Beautiful picture of the church. It's not just a preacher who is to love the sheep. The sheep are to love each other and love the preacher. Amen? And this church loves the preachers. They love the teachers. They love the shepherds. We can all say that. Amen. You guys do that so well. We're so blessed. This brings us to the close of this part of the chapter. We'll pick up at verse 17. It'll be really exciting next week as we see this now turn from Paul loving the church to the church loving Paul. Um, pray for me today. I, I, I don't typically preach in tennis shoes, but uh, I'm, I'm leaving here right now. In fact, I need to get going uh, up to Orlando to board a plane, going to the conference that Brenton mentioned. You will notice Brenton is not here. As soon as he walked off the platform with worship, he left for Orlando to board a plane. Brought his clothes with him to church. I brought mine as well. So there's about 16, 17 of the members of our fellowship who will be there in Nashville for the Sing Conference. Strong biblical teaching and strong worship by song. So pray for us. We'll be there for three days that the Holy Spirit will grab our hearts and we will receive from him. And I will be praying for you each day as a church. I know that we've got folks here who have procedures coming up this week. We'll be praying for you as you go through your, your issues. If you need help with anything, uh, you can contact one of the elders. Just, just email them or just text them. And if you don't have that, talk to somebody who can give you their information. Go to somebody who, that you know is connected in, and we will follow up in prayer, okay? That's important to us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for your love, the love that was first demonstrated by Jesus Christ, your Son. He gave up his life for us. And now you're calling us to give up our lives for one another, to be a true church, a New Testament early church, 
a church that wouldn't think of going and speaking against another member of the body. A church that truly loves, that we approach one another, we care enough to share, to love, because we are family. Thank you for this family, Lord. Thank you for every member of this family. Minister to them this week in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you, church. We do have elders and prayer partners who will come to the front. Always come up when you have a prayer need. They would be glad to pray with you over those needs. All right? God bless you.